For the past two and a half months, I have experienced what many of our senior brothers and sisters have to experience on a regular basis. I've had six to seven different imaging procedures done, x-rays, ultrasounds, MRI, CT scans, and a lot of different doctor's appointments. So those of you who are on Medicare, I, I kind of get what you're going through with all these doctor's appointments. The procedure has become pretty routine. I go into the doctor's office, a secretary is sitting behind the plexiglass window, it slides open, she asks my name, then my date of birth, whether or not my insurance is up to date, my address, are you still employed at Lakeshore Baptist Church? I then sit down and wait a few minutes until someone comes through the door, usually looking down at a clipboard and asking the question, Nathaniel? Yep, that's me. She says, come back and follow me. So we walk into the back section of the doctor's office, and she says, okay, I'll put you in room three right here. You can wait in there until the doctor arrives. I say, thank you. I find a chair, never knowing if I'm supposed to sit in the chair or on the little bed that's got that little thin paper on it. I don't want to ruin the paper for the next person. You know, I'm kind of skimpy like that. But I sit there and I wait for the doctor to come in and talk to me. And then I get to talk to the doctor. Prayer is much different than that. Prayer is the privilege of boldly, confidently entering into the throne room of God anytime that we want to and talking to him. There are no check-ins with the upfront people. There isn't any paperwork that needs to be submitted. There isn't any waiting. The death of Jesus on the cross has torn the curtain wide open so that God's people can come confidently into his presence, boldly into his presence, and talk with him about anything that we want to. So Hebrews 4, 16 says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So last week, we wrapped up a series in Psalms. The last two Psalms that we covered emphasized prayer. And what those Psalms taught us was that we can confidently petition God for the defeat of sin. So I have a problem. I go to the doctor's office. I get help there. I have a problem with sin. We all have a problem with sin. And what the Bible says is, you don't have to go into the waiting room you can just go boldly into the curtains and say, God, I see this sin in my life right now that I'm faced with. I don't like it. It's wrong, and I'm not going to coddle it. Sometimes I do. But my heart, Lord, is that this sin would be put to death. And what we've seen in Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 is that God is a God who delivers his people from sin, which is very hopeful for us. And I hope this last week and the previous week that as you have struggled with sin, that your first thought is, God, for your glory, put this sin to death right now. It's kind of hard for a person 
to keep running into the fire when he's screaming out to the fireman, help me, help me, I don't want to go there. It's hard for us to keep running into sin if we are truly like repentant or truly calling out to God saying, God, save me from this sin that I'm running towards or susceptible to. He delivers us. So it seemed best to wrap up this series, the last two sermons in particular in Psalms, by looking at Jesus' words on prayer that will sort of round out a little bit more our approach to prayer. So specifically, we want to look at Jesus' words on prayer in John 14 for the first point of the sermon, and then John 15 for the second point of the sermon. It was the last night that Jesus had with his disciples, and he shares John 14, 15, and 16, and then prays in chapter 17, and John the Apostle has recorded this time that Jesus had with his disciples. So there are two encouraging principles that we're going to cover in today's sermon. The first principle is this, I can have confidence in prayer because God will be glorified through answered prayer. And then the second is, I can have confidence in prayer because God clearly instructs us how obedience is necessary for prayer. Okay, so two themes on confidence. Let's look at point number one from John 14. I can have confidence in prayer because God will be glorified through answered prayer. I can have confidence in prayer because God will be glorified through answered prayer. So Jeff read this paragraph for us beginning in verse 8. And what's taking place is that Philip, one of the disciples, has asked a legitimate question. Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus responds by saying that, Philip, you've actually seen the Father because I dwell in the Father and the Father dwells in me. And we're saying, okay, we might be like Philip, give us a little more help. How specifically have we seen the Father in you and you in the Father? And Jesus goes on with this paragraph of emphasizing the words that he has spoken and the works that he has done are the words of the Father and the works of the Father. So when you think about the works of Jesus, probably most memorable are his miracles. And you can think of perhaps the most bombastic miracle that he performed perhaps just two weeks earlier with the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus did many other wonderful miracles, feeding of the 5,000, healing lepers, calming the sea. These were the works that Jesus had done, and perhaps Philip is thinking that. Now, verse 12, Jesus says this, truly, truly, like, I really mean this. I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. So the question that just wants to be answered right now is, what does it mean to do greater works than Jesus? I mean, he fed 5,000 people. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He calmed the sea. How is it possible that one could do greater works than Jesus? I don't think that Jesus is talking about miracle-working works. 
that he has done, or else all of us would be doing miracles. And even if you're a continuationist with the gifts, 1 Corinthians 12 says that only some would have the gift of miracle working, not everyone. So how are we to think about this? Because Jesus says this would be for everyone. Maybe you can think of it this way. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, a massively built man, I believe he was living in Canada, uh, his name was Louis Sear, and he was a strong man phenom. And at the time, his record feats included backlifting, which I didn't know this until this last week, is getting down on your hands and knees, putting weight across your back, and arching up and lifting up weight. And he could backlift over 4,000 pounds in the late 1800s, early 1900s. By the way, that record has since been broken, I mean, many times over. Not only was he able to do that, but you just look at pictures of him and he walks, he, he stands like this, and the article says that he could, with one finger, probably scooping underneath a band or a bar or some kind of tightrope, with one finger, he could lift 500 pounds. I think my tendons would snap. Now, if Louis was gathered with a bunch of scrawny junior high boys, and they're just looking at him with eyes popping wide open. And Louis said to those junior high boys, he said, you will do the works that I do and greater works than these you will do. You could see those boys with their eyes popping wide open thinking, not just that big, but I'm going to be incredible Hulk big apparently someday. But that's not what Louis's thinking. Louis is thinking, well, in just a few years, there's going to be front-end loaders, and there's going to be cranes, and you young men are going to be able to sit in the cabs of these front-end loaders, and with your fingers, you are going to be able to take a boom bucket and scoop it up, and you're going to be able to lift thousands of pounds with your fingers. And your cranes are going to be able to lift tons of weight. What I think Jesus is talking about is that a new time, a new era would come when the followers of Jesus will do acts and works that propel the gospel forward by sharing the good news of Jesus and seeing people rescued from spiritual darkness and brought into a saving relationship with the Father. A new era would come in which people's lives would be changed by the indwelling ministry of the Spirit, and it marked the start of the church. And Jesus is saying, you're going to do even greater things because a new era is coming. Here's how D.A. Carson says it. The signs and works Jesus performed during his ministry could not fully accomplish their true end until after Jesus had risen from the dead and been exalted. By contrast, the works believers are given to do through the power of the eschatological spirit, the spirit who would come after Jesus' glorification, will be set in the framework of Jesus' death and triumph. 
and will therefore more immediately and truly reveal the Son. Thus, greater things is constrained by salvation, historical realities. So in short, what Carson is saying is that because Jesus' work of redemption is finished, the cross has been finished, the resurrection has been done, Jesus has ascended into heaven, we live during this time where now God is drawing people to himself in a powerful way, and we are part of that work. And there's a lot more work to be done. There's a lot more work of ingathering, and God invites us to join him in that. So God is not going to fail in his work. It will be done. Yet, how will that work be done? So Jesus goes on in this passage in verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So here's what he says. The work is there. Prayer needs to be part of this. And it needs to be prayer that is in my name. Now, twice he mentions that phrase, in my name. We've seen that before. What does it mean to be praying in the name of Jesus? I think on more than one occasion, I've been maybe even given over to the wrong kind of prayer where, well, I've got this need or I've got this want. And so in the name of Jesus, magic words, God, please give this to me. Um, Show of hands for anybody that's, no, you don't need to. I think we've all been there. We've all kind of hoped that that would be the magic formula to get what we want. Okay, how does scripture help us understand this? You remember from our study in Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 that we talked about the name of God. Psalm 20, verse 1, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Psalm 20, verse 5, may we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. Some trust in chariots, verse 7, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Jesus is saying, pray in my name, and we're seeing the name of God invoked back in the Psalms. And we realize that when the name of God is invoked, we are praying that all of who God is would be part of this. May all of who God is protect you, verse 1. May all of God who is be glorified when the prayer is answered because the banner is going to go up and we're going to say, God, that was all you. May all of who God is be whom we trust because some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we're going to trust in all of who God is. It's the same here in verse 14. When Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, in all of who I am and who I am as an individual, then I will do it. So Jesus is saying, hey, there's great work to be done. And these are the 12 disciples that he is going to commission and consequently us. And he's saying, now, because you've got great work to do, you've got to be people of prayer. And anything that's asked in my name, all of who I am, I will do it for you. So Another quote just to help us 
stay in line. A.W. Pink, in his commentary on John, says this. From what has been said above, speaking of that which is prayed in Christ's name, and he uses a little bit more uh, historical language, you might say. From what has been said above, it will be seen that Christ was very far from handing his disciples a blank check, as some have expressed it, leaving them to fill it in and assuring them that God would honor it because it bore his son's signature. Equally so, is it a carnal delusion to suppose that a Christian has only to work himself up to an expectation to suppose that God will hear his prayer in order to obtain what he asks for. To apply to God for anything in the name of Christ, the petition must be in keeping with what Christ is. To ask in the name of Christ is therefore to set aside our own will and bow to the perfect will of God. So he's saying here, this is Christ's will that the work would be done. And because it's Christ's will that the work would be done, Christ is saying, ask me for help. Petition me. And I will do it because that is what I'm about. That is who I am. Now, when you have an understanding of that, this is either like a lead balloon that sort of drops your heart into the bottom of the basement because you're thinking, I don't know that I want what Jesus wants. I don't know that I want to be involved with the works of all of who Jesus is. And you think, well, shucks. I can't use prayer to get what I want. And there goes your heart into the bottom of the basement. Or for some of us, it's like a door has just opened up and this bright light of hope shines in because we want to see the work of Christ go forward in the lives of people. We want to see his power on display. We want to see people saved. We want to see people repenting. We want to see people come back to Jesus. I think there's so many grandparents in here, so many parents in here who say, I want the heart of my grandchildren or my children to be tender towards Christ. And Jesus says, come and pray to me in my name. Because that's who he is. He is a shepherd who goes out with his staff and pulls people in. He's a deliverer who follows people and says, I'm going to rescue you from that. And so what this does for me now in thinking about evangelism and witnessing, this bolsters hope because I want to see God's glory on display. And I'm going to fall in line with Christ's desires. And Christ is saying, this I will do. We can pray with confidence now that God is going to accomplish what he desires to accomplish. Here's just a little rabbit trail. Last night, I'm going to bed, and Saturday nights, you can imagine, Sunday is on my mind. And Saturday nights, I, I rarely sleep well. Because it's, you know, when you go to bed and you've got something the next day and it's constantly on your mind, you feel like you're thinking about it all night and you, you just kind of in and out of sleep. Well, that's how I am. So you can pray for me every Saturday night, okay? <laughs> While you sleep. 
So I'm praying, all of a sudden, it's like, normally I'm praying, God, um, Chris and I close out the night in prayer, God, we pray for the day tomorrow, and we're praying that you would use us for your purposes in the church family tomorrow, and so on and so on. And we finished up in prayer, and I'm laying there. And what a relief it was for me to think, man, this is exciting, God, that tomorrow we are gathering together because that's your will. We're going to sing together because that's your will. We're going to pray together because that's your will. And God, I'm just praying that you would be glorified in it all. So whatever role that you want me to play, I just want to pour my heart out to you and just do what you want. May you be honored and glorified. Do you see the picture here of what it looks like to join God with where he is and say, God, it's not about me. It's all about you. And so when you're thinking about your marriages, doesn't God desire that marriage reflect Christ and the church? I'm praying that I would not have such a negative attitude towards my spouse because they did it again. Okay, whatever. All right. What about praying, God, it's your will that my marriage reflects Christ and the church. And what a privilege it is for me to follow you into marriage and to love my spouse for your honor and your glory so that you might be on display. And it's not about me getting my spouse to recognize what they haven't recognized for years. You know, it's a total game changer for us to pray for the glory of God in and through our lives, and for him to answer prayers accordingly. This is why Paul could confidently pray 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 11. And let this kind of inform your prayers as well. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11. He says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. There's some confidence right there. I mean, we might say, Paul, you're kind of getting ahead of yourself. You're kind of getting ahead of the sovereignty of God right here. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Now, look at the role of prayer in God's work here. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks, thanks to God on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. And I think what an awesome passage here on prayer that can be related or correlated to our everyday life. But Paul and company have set their hope on God. Paul knows that it's God's will for the gospel to go forward. They face affliction. They want to proceed in their ministry of gospel proclamation, seeing the churches established. And Paul is saying, I'm confident that these prayers will be answered on our behalf. I just think so many times we're scared to pray because we haven't seen answers the way that we've wanted in the past. 
or we're scared to pray because we only emphasize one portion of scripture. And look, I mean, I'm a flag-waving individual about the sovereignty of God. I believe it, like, from end to end. And yet, there can be truths in Scripture that can stand even though they appear to be in tension with one another. So here's the sovereignty of God, and Paul is all about it. He's like, I know that God's going to do this. And yet, he's over here saying, now I need you to pick up the flag of prayer and start waving it and start offering your prayers on behalf of us. Do those things contradict each other? Apparently not. So let's pray that God will be glorified, which leads us, you know, to the second part of verse 13. What purpose would Jesus say to pray? And here's a statement that I feel like we could swim in for a long time. It's, there's some richness and depth here. Pray for what purpose? Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, purpose clause, in order that the Father might be glorified in the Son. And so here is Jesus just saying, I want the Father to be glorified. And so through the prayers of Christians, God, please act powerfully in the life of this person because we want you to be glorified. Through the prayers of Christians, Jesus wants the Father to continue to be glorified by the work that is done because of the prayers, the answering of prayers that are consistent with who he is. So I just step back and I think I get excited to pray for boldness to share the gospel so that the Father might be glorified. I get excited to ask God to empower teachers down that hallway on Sunday mornings who are teaching our kids that the word might go forth powerfully and might, like lightning, just in a good way, strike the hearts of our children, put a little jolt into them. I get excited to pray that God will deliver me from patterns of sin because I want God to be glorified. I'm joining God in who he is, and he's saying, now petition me in these ways. So let this be an encouragement for us to pray this way this week that Jesus is interceding on our behalf. He's made it possible for us to run boldly through that curtain. We don't have to wait in line at the doctor's office. We can confidently and boldly ask God for these requests that are in line with his will that's portrayed in Scripture. Um, earlier in the sermon, Pastor Mike shared with us about Phil Hunt. And Phil has asked Simon, this individual in Africa, in Zambia, to pray that God would make himself known to him. And I think if Simon, if his heart is truly bent towards those things of God, saying, God, please show me. I want to see this. God is not a God who hides. He is a God who makes himself known. That's a prayer request that God is pleased to answer. I, I think for us, there's so many opportunities for us to be thinking, God, I want to be Christ-like, and I want to be all of who Christ is and in my prayers. And so now when I see these patterns of sin or when I see these requests that seem to be consistent with who you are, 
I want to come confidently and pray. I want to pray because of who you are and what you've provided for me. So pray. Now, what more should we know about prayer? Second point to the sermon. We'll move quickly through this. Second point to the sermon is Christian obedience. I can have confidence in prayer because God clearly instructs us how obedience is necessary for prayer. I can have confidence in prayer because God clearly instructs us how obedience is necessary for prayer. So that same night, just a chapter later, so a few moments later, Jesus says in John 15, verse 7, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So I've had a few years of coaching some basketball teams in the community. My boys play on the teams, and I enjoy spending time with them that way. So a couple years ago, I'm coaching. I remember calling a timeout, middle of a game. Come on, players, come on over. You get like 30 seconds for a timeout. They run over to the bench, and I've got this little play that we're supposed to draw up. And the play is, um, I want all four of you to get out of the way, and our best man is going to go one-on-one with their best man and try to get to the hoop, and we'll just see how it goes, all right? That's what happens with, like, nine-year-olds. Just get out of the way and let one-on-one happen. So one of my guys was saying, but what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? And the ref is blowing the whistle, meaning break the huddle, come on back out onto the court. And I was saying, just get out of his way. Let him go one-on-one. The ref blowing the whistle, that individual is still kind of lost on how he is supposed to proceed. And I can still remember to this day feeling bad. He breaks, we break the huddle, and he goes out onto the court, and he's just got his hands up in the air like this, like, what, what am I supposed to be doing here? As a coach or as a director, there's nothing more frustrating than knowing it's your task to instruct these players with the simple building blocks, but then to be confronted, I failed in teaching them. I failed in instructing them. That individual didn't know what to do. God is a much better teacher. He instructs us very clearly. It becomes very clear that God has instructed us that he will answer prayers when we are walking in obedience with him. Let me read several passages throughout the Bible that show the relationship between our obedience to God and his prerogative to answer prayer. Six passages that I want you to see. 2 Chronicles 7, verses 13 and 15. This is when the temple's being dedicated. And note the relationship between obedience and answers to prayer. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, that's because of the curses, they sinned, and so God's sending them judgment. He says... If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. You can see the relationship between repentance and God answering the prayer. Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. What man is there who desires life and loves many days, that he may see good? 
Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Because the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Again, you see the relationship there. Psalm 66, verses 17 through 20. I cried to him with my mouth and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. James chapter 5. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Again, you can see the righteous person has great power in prayer. 1 Peter chapter 3. We've read this the last two weeks. Maybe it's God's will that husbands would hear this a third time. Third time's a charm. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Well, what happens if you don't live with them in an understanding way? Well, your prayers may be hindered. Live with them in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. And then 1 John chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Okay, you can see, if we're just going to be honest with scripture, you can see that there is a condition for God answering prayers, and that is, one of the conditions is that we would be obedient, keeping his commands. So in chapter 15, we see this same theme come up, God what do you have for us? If you abide with me and my words abide in you, verse 7, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, there's the keeping part, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments. And so there is this picture here of John 15 of abiding in the trunk, abiding in the vine, And Jesus says, I'm the vine, and he who abides in me, he who has his word, or abides in me, my words will abide in him. And so there's this this relationship that is taking place between our lives and him, a life of obedience, heeding his word, and God giving us what we need. And here's his promise. He who abides in Christ... He who has God's words abiding in him, who is obedient, can come to God in prayer, and God is pleased to answer the prayers of someone who is dominated by the word. All right, now I know what you are thinking. Some of you are thinking something like this. Is this a guarantee? Now, I wanted to be careful in this passage because Jesus doesn't give the exceptions However, I know you have the question, so let me just give this brief mention so that we don't lose the thrust of the passage. If my children come to me and they've been obedient and they say, Dad, can I have an apple right now? And they've been good attitudes, obedient, they've honored their mother, 
I might say, no, not now. Because it's 4.45 and we're going to eat at 5.15. They don't know that, but I do. And there might be a good reason for me to say no at that moment. The other mistake is this. If I just run around and load up a bunch of good works in my life, I can merit obedience. And I can merit, if you build obedience, I can merit answers to prayer. Look, God, I'm cashing in five good works of obedience. Therefore, come on, you owe me an answer to prayer. Well, the rebuttal to that all is we don't merit any obedience. The only reason why we would want to obey the Father is because of the work that he's done in our lives through Jesus Christ. And so we don't run around saying, I'm going to do good works so that I can get what I want. God has done the work in us to give us those wants. However, we need to be aware that God is pleased to answer the prayers of those who have walked in obedience to him. So the person who says, I tried this whole prayer thing. I asked him a few times to give me a few important things, and all that happened were things continued to go to pot. Therefore, I just gave up on God. We should know that God doesn't operate that way. He's not going to give you what you want when your life could be like the outermost planet outside orbiting the sun, sometimes going rogue, kind of living in your own lane as far away from God as possible, but using your flare prayers to kind of get what you want every once in a while. This is a motivation to say, God, you are so kind to me that I have prayer. And it's a blessing that I have your word that leads me along. It's a blessing that you give me paths and instructions for me to have fellowship with you. God, I am in fellowship with you. God, here's my petition now to you. I know that there's, as far as I can know, there's no sin that's obstructing my relationship with you. You've been so kind to me and allowing me to fellowship with you. There's confidence that we can have when we approach the throne knowing that we've dealt with sin and we've walked by faith in obedience to God. So the conclusion is obvious here. We can be elated with joy that God invites us to confidently pray, to come to him, and that he is ready to answer prayers for his glory. You might pray for the repentance of sin to happen in the deepest part of your heart. So folks, you're looking at prayer right now and you're looking at your life and there are times when we notice, Lord, this root of bitterness is in the deepest part of my heart. This fear is in the deepest part of my heart. God, will you please deliver me in this moment from that bitterness or that fear not for my own creaturely comforts, but for your glory to be on display. You might pray that God would soften your heart towards those who have hurt you. And like Jesus' words, you would love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And you might see God answer that prayer gloriously and give you a heart of love toward that individual. You might pray that God will indeed provide for your needs. And yet you wouldn't have a heart that is just drawn up in a love for money. Young people, 
You might pray that you would have a heart that is filled with respect and honor for your parents, even though you feel like they might not understand you right now. But that you would have a heart of respect and honor for your parents for the glory of God. Jesus said in Matthew 7, we'll close with this. Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, here it is. Here's our focus. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So let's be joyful that God invites us to confidently pray and that he is ready and willing to answer prayers for his glory this week. Let's pray.